This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. As the year draws to an end, we'd like to use this opportunity to review the biggest events of 2019, including landmark trials, guideline publications, and ongoing areas of debate. James and I will begin with a quick summary of recent events before moving on to an interview with Professor David Matthews for his personal highlights from the year. If you've been keeping a key eye on the goings-on of the last 12 months, do feel free to skip ahead to the five-minute mark for this interview. And if you'd like to read more about anything discussed today, please refer to the episode notes where we will link to all the publications and guidelines we mention. Let's begin with clinical trials. It's been a good year for outcomes data, with the publication of several cardiovascular and renal outcomes trials across SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and DPP-4 inhibitors. While individual results have been both positive and negative, these have confirmed common effects across drug classes, which further support guideline recommendations from 2018. For example, the Carolina and Carmelina trial results were presented at this year's ADA meeting. These trials evaluated the effect of lenagliptin on cardiovascular and renal outcomes in patients with pre-existing macrovascular disease and renal impairment. The trial demonstrated non-inferiority for lenagliptin compared to the comparator arm, which was a sulfonylurea for the Carolina trial and a placebo for the Carmelina trial. This confirmed that across the DPP-4 class, there are no clinically significant effects, neither positive nor negative, on multifactorial outcomes. SGLT2 inhibitors, on the other hand, saw positive results for two major trials, DAPA-HF, which looked at heart failure outcomes in non-diabetic patients receiving dapagliflozin, and Credence, which looked at renal outcomes in diabetic patients receiving canagliflozin. DAPA-HF observed a 26% relative risk reduction for a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, hospitalisation for heart failure and urgent heart failure visit among its intervention arm. This demonstrated for the first time that the cardioprotective effect of an SGLT2 inhibitor was independent of its effects on glycemia, because although previous cardiovascular trials indicated cardioprotection across the class, this trial observed the protection in people without diabetes. Similarly, the positive results of the Credence trial were significant, as this was the first large-scale renal-specific outcomes trial. The SGLT2 class had a wealth of data available to implicate them as nephroprotective agents. However, these were largely secondary outcomes taken from cardiovascular trials. Credence was a double-blind, randomised control trial where patients with established albuminuric chronic kidney disease received either canagliflozin or placebo. The trial observed a 30% relative risk reduction in composite outcome, including development of end-stage renal disease, doubling of serum creatinine, or deaths from renal or cardiovascular causes. GLP-1 receptor agonists have seen a mixed bag of trials published over the last year. Many of the pioneer trials have been published, which evaluated the efficacy and or safety of oral semaglutide versus various comparators, including embagliflozin, lenagliptin, and placebo. Many of these trials were positive and have contributed towards the FDA approval of oral semaglutide. The cardiovascular outcomes trial, Pioneer 6, however, was neutral. Although this trial observed a 21% reduction in major cardiovascular events, this was deemed to be insufficiently statistically significant to confirm superiority for oral semaglutide over placebo and could thus only conclude non-inferiority. The Rewind trial was also published this year. 
This cardiovascular outcomes trial evaluated the cardioprotective effects of dulaglutide compared to placebo and observed a 12% relative reduction in major cardiovascular events for the dulaglutide arm. This result was statistically significant and, when combined in a meta-analysis of all GLP-1 cardiovascular trials, including LEADER, SUSTAIN-6, HARMONY Outcomes, and Pioneer-6, indicates that cardiovascular protection is a class effect across all long-acting GLP-1 analogues. Moving on from trial data, this year also saw the publication of updated ESC guidelines for the treatment of diabetes and prediabetes. Alongside other recommendations for reducing cardiovascular risk, these guidelines recommend the first-line use of either a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor in patients considered at high risk of cardiovascular disease. This recommendation is the subject of much debate among experts in the field of diabetes, which brings us to our interview with Professor David Matthews, Professor of Diabetic Medicine at the University of Oxford and President of the EASD. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Matthews. So our first question would be, 2019 has been a very interesting year with a range of trial data published and presented at congresses, including your EASD annual meeting in Barcelona. If you had to pick just one trial from this year as particularly key in practice changing, what would it be and why? Well, that's an interesting question. And if you were to ask me as the president of the European Association for Study of Diabetes, then I would look at our own meeting. But I'm afraid that uh, it, it seems rather proud to say this, but I think that the most interesting of the presentations in terms of what will change clinical practice was our own study, Verify, where we were looking at the whole question as to whether metformin alone or in combination was the best pharmaceutical treatment to start in type 2 diabetes. Clearly, in type 2 diabetes, one should be trying very uh, assiduously to begin with, uh, using diet and exercise to reduce the blood glucose. And we know that that has remarkable effects. But then beyond that, beyond the diet and exercise, we um, uh, are definitively thinking that um, we need to open the question as to whether metformin uh, alone or in combination would be a better start. And the Verify study addressed that problem. So I think that uh, if you want me to, to say a bit more about the Verify study, I think uh, that would be something I could do. Of course, the other interesting thing that came out of the European Association of Study of Diabetes was the debate about uh, long-acting insulins. And that debate has not gone to sleep and is quite an active debate about uh, whether one can reduce hypoglycemia using different uh, insulin types. Marvellous. Yes, please do talk through the specifics of the Verify study. It would benefit any of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the topic. Well, the, the Verify study looked at the question of whether metformin was going to be the, uh, the best monotherapy or whether, in fact, you should use combination therapy uh, at the beginning of pharmacological therapy for type 2 diabetes. You then have to ask the question as to, well, what is the end point going to be? In other words, what is better? And there are two ways of looking at that. One is whether you can keep the blood glucose lower uh, uh, for longer. But the second and more interesting question is whether if you 
were to start with metformin and then add in another agent as necessary, in other words, what we do now, whether that would make any difference in the longer term going on to a third therapy, which in this case with the Verify study was insulin. So what we did is over, over a five-year period after recruitment is to take people who were newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, that is within three months of uh, their being recognized as having type 2 diabetes, and randomize those between single therapy, metformin, or metformin and a DP4 inhibitor, which in this case was vildagliptin. So here you've got two arms of a study, and one is on metformin and the other is on metformin plus filter. And you look for failure uh, for those people going through the threshold of uh, 7% hemoglobin A1c. Now, we don't want people just to drop through that because they might do that with a bit of noise. In other words, was that permanent or was that just a, uh, a, 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 an outlier to visit? So we said that, that, that it had to be confirmed. So you, you had a, uh, first of all, you had a, a, a value which was above seven, and then you had to have a repeat value above seven. So you start the trial, uh, you check people up, um, and then you can have one failure uh, and another failure, and then uh, you're regarded as having failed on that treatment. So the first time that you could um, uh, fail is obviously at six months because uh, you come in at three months and you're high um, and then you're at six months and you're higher again and so you've failed. And then you look at that the alternatives between the two and it turns out that actually on combination therapy you fail significantly uh, less on the combination therapy. But people would then say, yes, 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 but uh, obviously two therapies are better than one, so that doesn't tell us anything that we didn't uh, already guess. Though it does tell you that it's about, uh, that, that the effect is, is, uh, is double. In other words, twice as many people will fail on monotherapy as on combination therapy. But then the next question that arises is the extent to which if you're on combination therapy um, and then fail on to insulin or whether you were on metformin and then had combination therapy uh, added if your blood sugar went high, uh, who would go on to insulin faster? And it turns out that this secondary failure, in other words, do you do better to be on from the start or do you uh, simply go on to a therapy where you can add it in if your blood glucose is going up? then again, you find that the combination therapy is significantly better than the, uh, the monotherapy with other therapy added in uh, when you're looking at that second failure. So the, this then starts to open the, the question about metformin as a monotherapy. And I think that the, the future holds, uh, what the future holds is that people will more preferentially be going on to combination therapy from the beginning because they're less likely to go on to uh, insulin um, and, and certainly they will go on to insulin later than if you start with metformin followed by an add-on therapy as needed. 
Thank you so much for your detailed response, and that brings me on to a very similar topic. This year also saw the publication of 2019 ESC guidelines on diabetes, prediabetes, and cardiovascular diseases, developed in collaboration with the EASD. The treatment algorithm included in these guidelines appears to be the topic of debate among experts in the field, in particular the recommendation for initiating SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists as monotherapy in drug-naive patients. Could you comment on this algorithm and whether it should be used routinely in clinical practice? Well, the uh, ESD was collaborating with the ESC on this guideline, and, and when it was finally uh, produced, the ESD said that they were unhappy with what was being said in the ESC guideline. And the, the reason that we are unhappy and why we downgraded our uh, the, the, uh, the, the title, which was meant to be a, a, a joint statement, uh, you'll see that it simply says now in collaboration with. Um, the reason that we downgraded our support for this and um, is not that it's wrong, it's just that, that we don't know that it's true. Um, and, and there's a particular distinction between those two things. And the reason that we don't think that uh, we have got uh, to the point of a guideline about starting SGLT2s or GLP-1s this early is that all the data relating to SGLT2s and GLP-1 are taken from patients who are about 10 years into the disease process. In other words, we know, and we could say, and you can produce a guideline to say, if you've got patients who are 10 years in to diabetes and they've got signs of heart failure or they've got risks and so on, then it's very sensible to put those people onto SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists. The problem is that there's a 10-year uh, evidence-free zone between the time that you were diagnosed and the time that the data about SGLT2s and GLP-1 agonists kick in. And that's a, if that's an evidence-free zone, then you can say, well, <clears throat> if it works for people who are 10 years into diabetes, then maybe it'll work for people who are five years in and two years in, and, and maybe we should start it even uh, at the beginning. And the answer to that is, yes, maybe, 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 but this is an evidence-free zone. And so the difference between this and what the Verify study uh, uh, was looking at is to say, look, if you've got a question about what you should be doing early in diabetes, then I'm sorry, but you need to do the trial of that. If you're so convinced that this is going to work, then you have to take people who are newly diagnosed and you have to test these out with SGLT2s and GLP-1 inhibitors. Now, then people will say, oh, we can't possibly do that because people aren't going to fall over and get uh, um, heart disease and uh, and so on that early on, and so we'll never get the endpoints. And the answer to that is, well, actually, within Verify, we were starting to get a signal with cardiovascular outcomes, which was positive. Uh, it's nowhere near statistically significant, but the lines diverge uh, very consistently from the beginning of the study. And so we have got enough data there to say, well, you can power up your study. Uh, we know the rate at which you can accumulate uh, cardiovascular outcomes uh, from the Verify study, and you can do the study if you want to make that claim. 
But I think that taking data that is way out at 10 years and saying that this applies to people at time zero is something that may be true. And I'm perfectly happy to say that that's a pretty good hypothesis. But if you're going to nail this down and say this is going to be your absolute guideline, then I'm sorry, we the ESD is not in a position where we think that that's a sensible thing to do. Why would you give advice out on the basis of saying, well, we think this would be a good idea? You can say it's a good idea and I can say it's a good idea, but you can't write this into a guideline and then say that this is the definitive decision of the ESD because it isn't. And so that's where we diverge with the ESC. It's not that we don't think that this might be true. The question is, have you got evidence that it's true? And the answer to that is, we do not have the evidence yet. So let's get the evidence. Now, we may end up with this as a guideline in five or 10 years time if people bother to do the trials, and we may not. But the, the costs of starting people over those ten, that 10 year period of evidence free duration is considerable. So I still think that we were right in saying to the ESC, if you uh, want to publish this, you can. You can say that we collaborated, which is true, but you cannot say that we agree uh, with this as a definitive statement. I see. That's fascinating. So in that same vein of there needs to be evidence before a guideline recommendation can be made, do you see any future guidelines changing based on the verified study or similar? That is, initiating with dual therapy, whether that's a DPP-4 inhibitor or something else. Will that make it into the next guidelines? Well, I certainly think that uh, it would it would be crazy to ignore this. And I think that <clears throat> the reason that DPP-4 inhibitors were chosen as a first-line treatment with metformin is that they don't give you hyperglycemia. They have very, very few uh, side effects. In fact, uh, none that we could detect with any um, certainty and that they've got a very good safety profile. So what you're choosing here is an agent that uh, you can give give and uh, forget about. The problem with uh, uh, GLP-1 at the moment is that you have uh, it's injectable and we're, we'll talk in a moment about oral semaglutide. Um, and the problem with the SGLT2 inhibitors is that you do have um, uh, uh, some side effects of those. And, and in particular, you have genital infections and you have to tell people especially about uh, 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 hygiene and so on. Um, and there may be some additional uh, side effects of SGLT2s. Um, there was a thought at one stage that that canagliflozin uh, was associated with amputation, and certainly the CANVAS trial showed that. Interestingly, the CREDENCE trial showed no such signal, so we're still a bit uncertain about whether that's a, a real finding or whether that was a chance finding in the uh, CANVAS program, uh, though within empagliflozin, uh, no such signal uh, was seen. So, so I think that the the, uh, the the issue about what will go into guidelines is that that clearly I think the only evidence we've got at the moment is about uh, DPP four inhibitors uh, generally and uh, and filtergliptin explicitly uh, as first line therapy. Now, uh, in the future, we have oral semaglutide, and that might uh, change things around again. 
Finally, this year saw the US approval of the oral formulation of semaglutide. How do you see clinical practice changing with this oral formulation? I think it will change dramatically. The the issue over uh, semaglutide uh, um, is, is one which is, or, or the GLP-1 inhibitors generally, is that, that they have a very good effect, but people didn't like uh, injecting uh, GLP-1 agonists. And I think the oral formulations are something that's going to change our uh, practice considerably. We always underestimate the extent to which uh, uh, it's an inconvenience, not just for patients, but for healthcare practices and so on, to change people over to the idea that you're going to inject yourself and so on. Um, people don't like it, but it's expensive to, to train people and it's expensive to have the uh, equipment and needles and so on. And so the costs of GLP-1 therapy should, with time, come down. Semaglutide is not cheap at the moment, oral semaglutide, but those costs will come down. But the great thing about this is that it comes in a, just comes as a tablet that you can take. And the interesting thing about oral semaglutide is that you still get your weight loss. Um, interestingly, you get less nausea than you might um, with uh, uh, some of the injectable therapies. And so if you're getting something that is changing your weight in the right direction uh, and uh, has a good cardiovascular signal and is taken orally, then my view is that that will gradually infiltrate the market in quite a, a major way. And I would have thought many, many people will be on oral semaglutide in five and ten years' time. This brings us to the end of our last episode for 2019. To summarise, clinical trials published over the course of the year have contributed further evidence towards cardiovascular and renal protective class effects of specific antihyperglycemic agents. These further support guideline recommendations for the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors in patients where cardiovascular risk is a concern. Recent ESC guidelines have gone a step further and recommended these agents as initial first-line monotherapy over metformin. This recommendation is currently a subject of debate among experts in the community. What was your biggest highlight of 2019? Tweet us at DKI Practice or use the hashtag Diabetes in 2019. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access our free accredited CME content at knowledgeinpractice.eu. And don't forget, you can find links to all references from today's episode in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a happy new year and look forward to joining you again in January.